everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Senator Nancy Skinner, who represents, among other places, Berkeley in the state Senate. Prior to her election to the state Senate in 2016, she was a member of the California State Assembly from 2008 to 2014. And as senator, she has introduced and passed some of the most fundamental criminal justice reforms in the state. We will talk to her mostly about three different bills, uh, two of which have passed and one was just introduced. Welcome to the show, Senator Skinner. Hi. Uh, glad to be here. Great. Um, so the big news this week was the Supreme Court uh, declined to hear appeals of the Fourth uh, District Court of Appeals decisions from November on 1437. And that means that 1437 is constitutional and it's unlikely to change. Do you agree with that? Well, I'm really pleased that our California Supreme Court upheld the um, 1437, which is the fix to the California's very unjust felony murder law. And of course, there, you know, there always could be an appeal by a different appellate court. Um, but right now, the the very excellent news, as you pointed out, is that the Supreme Court did not accept San Diego's uh, the appeal on San Diego's ruling. And San Diego's ruling was quite definitive and strong. And so I take the Supreme Court's action as being uh, that 1437 is constitutional and it's going to stay the law of the land. And for those who don't know, what is felony murder and how did 1437 change the law? Well, as uh, not being a lawyer myself, I didn't even understand it. I had no idea that in California, a person that did not commit murder, was not present at the murder, did not plan the murder, or even didn't direct the murder, could still be held equally culpable and, in effect, be convicted of murder under California's felony murder rule. And the felony murder rule, basically, it's it's almost like an accomplice rule, but I don't even like to um, use the word accomplice because it, in a funny way, it was it was so broad that it allowed someone to be convicted who literally, like four of us are in a car and uh, I don't know the other people in the car. I don't know that one of them has a gun. One person in that car uses the gun and another person uh, dies as a result of it. Under California's felony murder rule, I was equally culpable and could have been convicted of murder. 
And, you know, I don't consider that an accomplice. So it's, uh, that's how broad the felony murder rule was. And the way that we fixed it is we basically defined accomplice much more um, specifically. And we defined that you had to have a direct involvement in the, in the murder. Either you had to, uh, say, order it or planned it or acted with reckless indifference to human life in order to be charged. So I've now covered quite a few SB 1437 hearings, and I've gotten to see people who I think never expected to see the light of day again get released. And I don't think the average person really understands how much injustice is involved in some of these cases. Um, you know, we saw a couple of weeks ago in San Francisco, a guy who was sentenced uh, basically to life in prison at, in 1974, get released. I mean, it's wow. incredible stuff. Um, and, and that case, he was denied parole for uh, 18 times over the course of the last 46 years. I mean, just incredible stuff. Well, we could have a long conversation just on parole and the fact that our parole board still has only an 18% approval rating. So in other words, only 18% of the people who come before the parole board ever get an okay for release. So that's a whole nother. But let's just do it, get back to this unjustness of the felony murder rule. As I mentioned, I said, you know, people like me, it never would have occurred to me that someone, you know, there was a uh, sort of famous 60 Minutes expose of these brothers and a couple of their friends. They were uh, white teenagers from the suburbs of Southern California. This was in the, I believe, early 90s. And they uh, went after school to buy pot from a friend of theirs. And they went back into the backyard of the friend's, you know, the, the friend had a, like, shed in the backyard where he sold the pot from. Two of the kids stayed in front of the house. They weren't even in the backyard. They were in the front of the house. And the other two kids went in the backyard, and the, a fight ensued during the purchase of the pot. And uh, the kid who was selling the pot died. And that kid who died, who was murdered, was the son of a cop. And as a result, the uh, prosecutor threw felony murder on all four kids, even the two kids who were in the front of the house who, you know, didn't have a weapon, didn't plan anything. And they were all convicted of felony murder and sentenced to life without parole. So, I mean, these kind of cases are just outrageous on the face of it. And they're so outrageous that the California Supreme Court back in 1980 or in the 80s said that the rule was barbaric. And yet, over all this time since then, it took my bill in 2019 or 18 to finally uh, fix it. So I, I think it's, it's a really important reform, and it's, uh, it's going to affect a lot, a lot of people and a lot of families and a lot of communities in a positive way. So you mentioned that you had no idea that this was going on. Obviously, somebody had to bring this to your attention. How did you get involved in the felony murder reform? 
Well, it had been brought to my attention. So when, when I was on the, uh, the assembly in the Public Safety Committee, while no one had carried a bill to address it, um, in a hearing, someone started describing this. And that was my first inkling that there was something like that in the book. But again, I didn't really understand how pervasive it was. So then when I got elected to the Senate, I had a couple of um, different criminal justice reform groups come to visit me. And when they came to visit me, they brought family members. And these family members talked about their loved ones who were serving in uh, either prison or jail. A few of them were awaiting sentence. Some of them were already uh, convicted and sitting, serving time. And they were describing to me the, condition, the circumstances under which their family member was convicted. And again, it was, uh, you know, I began to learn about how pervasive this was and how many people were serving life sentences in our prisons. And California has 35,000 people serving life sentences. Um, that how many of them were serving these life sentences due to this rule. So the first thing I did, and it was, I believe it was a group, Cut 50, that first uh, had the idea. They said, look, let's do a resolution where, and a resolution is more just like a sense of the body. It doesn't have the power of statute. We said, let's do a resolution so we can start educating members because we guessed that there were at least as many members just like me who didn't understand this. And so by doing a resolution, we would start to bring attention to the issue and an understanding of it. So we did a resolution that described what the felony murder rule was, described what states had gotten rid of it and why, uh, cited the California Supreme Court's description of it as barbaric, and described a whole bunch of things, and then said at the very end that, um, you know, we felt the resolution kind of concluded that the felony murder rule was uh, wrong, unfair, and should be corrected. That passed overwhelmingly in both houses. So in a funny way, it put a lot of members on record, in effect, saying that they thought that the felony murder rule was unjust. So once that passed, and that was in um, 17, then we decided, all right, we'll um, go forward with the actual statutory change. And at that point, it was um, Restored Justice, who was the front organization, but many, many, many others joined in in support. Uh, but they were the primarily primary ones working on it. And fortunately, we had a great lawyer, um, uh, Kate Chatfield, who um, understood the law very well and understood other California statutes because clearly when both there's been propositions passed in California that to undo them requires either a two-thirds vote or a vote of the public and any changes to certain of our penal code can run up into you know are we skirting something that was passed in a proposition are we you know how do you write it and how do you write a change that you're trying to make to the penal code uh, surgically enough so that you're really getting that fixed without triggering all these other things that then either have to be put back to the voters or get a two-thirds vote and Kate was quite skilled at that and which was very fortunate so that we were able to design a statute change that didn't require a two-thirds vote. And then additionally, I had a great Republican co-author, um, Senator Joel Anderson from San Diego. He was the vice chair of my um, committee, the Public Safety Committee, 
and he just deeply felt that the felony murder law was unjust, and he was a co-author. It was great. And it, it turns out that um, some of the things that you mentioned, uh, you know, the overlapping propositions became kind of the basis for the opposition to then file a legal challenge. Were you anticipating this kind of legal challenge? Um, I, I figure almost every bill we pass at some point gets uh, challenged in the courts. But this is why it was so important to have the legal expertise of people like Kate, because um, we needed to draft that bill um, or, you know, have the language in the bill surgical enough so that we weren't triggering these other things and feeding a lawsuit. And so it was not only um, Kate Chatfield, but also fortunately as chair of the Public Safety Committee, the consultants for public safety who are excellent, excellent lawyers and have long experience in the state capitol, they also were extremely helpful in both in uh, not only the initial language, but as we took amendments moving through the process, making sure that those amendments didn't in any way jeopardize the um, ability for the law to be upheld by court in court. So I want to move on to another important piece of legislation, SB 1421. And sure. we're actually involved in, I think, five lawsuits trying to get uh, 1421 records out of various counties. I was telling your assistant that uh, one of uh, the, one of the uh, uh, jurisdictions we're fighting with actually destroyed the police records uh, literally between the time Governor Brown signed it and the time it became law. Um, and so we're trying to figure out how to litigate that. Well, this, what's ironic about that is that the reason California had this completely crazy um, sort of uh, secrecy or um, complete closed door on all police records was due to Governor Brown originally in his first administration where under California's Public Records Act, basically all records were available and police agencies were destroying all the records. They weren't holding on to any record because they didn't want to ever release them in the public. And so the, the then Brown administration felt like it was more important to retain records for uh, DAs to get, you know, with subpoenas or, you know, in court, because clearly under court cases, records are available in not always, but more often than not. And so they came up with um, basically the provision to carve out the police records from the Public Records Act. And that's what caused California for the last 40-odd years to be the most secretive state of all 50 states and basically have literally no public access to any type of police record. Yeah, so that's... Uh, so... Um, to have the police be um, destroying them in the anticipation of 1421 becoming law is, uh, yeah, pretty uh, ironic. Well, that that's very interesting. Uh, I wasn't aware of the history there. Um, I I am was aware that uh, 
it's very difficult to get police records. It's still very difficult to get police records. Um, yes, some, some agencies are turning it over. Some are not. Um, so how did your involvement in this issue come about? Well, I have voted on numerous past bills that try to lift this um, secrecy. Uh, while I was not in the legislature when Gloria Romero first carried a bill that was, again, trying to give some, some level of public access to police records. I mean, she was the first that I recall. Um, I remember uh, watching it, you know, reading in the press and such. And then when I got into the legislature, Mark Leno, and I believe Mark Leno carried at least twice. I voted on at least two bills during my time in the legislature, which would have um, again, given some level of public access to police records. Neither of those were successful. So it was definitely one of those where, you know, it seemed like uh, this is just not something that was ever going to be able to, to um, be able to be broken open. And so when my staff and I, we, you know, as chair of public safety, as I indicated before, I have access to the best people in the building. My consultants, they're just brilliant. So I knew that I had the type of team that I could really rely on to design a bill well. And, and you know, the ACLU was strong, strong supporter, the newspaper organizations, and there were various other groups that were very, very supportive. But I still, as we sat down and talked about it, I thought, you know, what, what makes now different? Why, why do we feel like we're going to have any better chance than anybody else did? But we decided to take the approach of narrowing it. And... We, we, you know, we just thought about, like, how could anyone argue against the most serious misconduct of an officer being uh, denied, us, uh, the public being able to see it, or even the city council or the police chief, right? Because you had, um, you had public agencies that could not even review this information or DAs about, you know, officers within their jurisdiction. So we decided that we, if we narrowed it to the point where things like tampering with evidence and uh, interfering with a witness, um, direct uh, lying, dishonesty, and, you know, in the job, and then of course use of force, which was uh, in recent years a very, very hot topic, we thought it was going to be pretty hard to argue against. So that's we decided. All right, we'll try it. We'll try it with this narrower. Um, focus and see if we're successful. And I'm very, very fortunate that we were. And it really, it took a village. It was a lot, a lot of people working very, very hard for that bill to be successful. Well, I remember right after the Copley decision came down, uh, there was a bill, it was probably Romero's bill, uh, come to think of it. And uh, yes, I think it was Romero's right after Copley. And I went to the assembly, um, uh, law enforcement uh, committee, whatever that's called. And um, all of a sudden, this long line of uniformed police officers walk in one by one, and you can just see the assembly members, all the Democrats on the committee just caved at that point. And, uh, and that bill was basically dead at that point. Well, law enforcement by and large, did not like 1421. There were exceptions. I mean, the DA supported it. There were some exceptions. And again, the other reason I felt it was appropriate to narrow it, I mean, I, 
in general, I think public records should be public records. So I do appreciate that our our sworn officers they're in a very different role than you know many other public officials. So I I we want good people in those jobs. We need our police officers and our sworn officers. We need them. So I was really trying to design a bill that was sensitive to legitimate concerns they may have, but was also responsive to the very, very legitimate concerns of the public and of uh, agencies and others around this complete secrecy. So really quickly, I know you're going to have to go in a minute here, but, um, you know, I was really intrigued uh, by the early notion of SB 889, uh, which I think could uh, could be another one of these really impactful uh, pieces of legislation should it get enacted because it changes the minimum age for trying someone as an adult from 18 to 20. What is the thinking behind that? Well, it's interesting. This notion in our culture of who's an adult, it changes all the time. So, you know, for, the, for many, many years, Certainly when I was in high school, an adult was 21. You didn't vote until you were 21. Uh, you didn't drink until you were 21. There was a whole variety of things, except you could be drafted. So then all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, if you're drafted at 18, maybe you're an adult then. So let's change some other stuff. So there was a move to change uh, alcohol rules to 18. There was the move to change vote to 18. But, you know, it's interesting. Those two ages, 18, 19, they still have the word teen in them. They're teenagers. And now we see this kind of pulling back, partly due to the brain research and probably due to real evidence that, for example, car rental agencies won't <laughs> rent to uh, under 21. The amount of the accidents of car accidents for people under 21 is much higher. The whole trend in uh, who, drinking age is 21. And interestingly, the Trump administration recently uh, did executive order that tobacco products should only be 21 and older. So, the, the, again, the notion of an adult. And so I figured, look, 18 and 19 is teens. That's teenagers. So we need to treat them as teenagers. The brain science says they're teenagers. So let's, from a criminal justice point of view, treat them as teenagers. Well, that is all the time we have. I want to thank you very much, Senator Skinner, for being on our show this week. Well, you're quite welcome. That was Senator Nancy Skinner. She is Senator uh, that represents Berkeley, among other areas in the East Bay. And she has sponsored some of the most impactful legislation that we have in California including SB 1437, which changed the felony murder rule, SB 1421, and we were just talking very briefly about her new piece of legislation, which could become another one of those bills, SB 889, which will change the minimum age for trying someone as an adult from 18 to 20. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for another episode. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. 
You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.